Welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael, and I want to thank you again, as always, for tuning into the show. Foreign interference in Venezuela has been a huge talking point on this podcast. And while we've talked about Venezuela's role as an importer of foreign influence, we haven't really discussed its role as an exporter of influence. Back in the 2000s, when oil prices made Venezuela's government obscenely rich, Hugo Chavez showered countries throughout Latin America and the Caribbean with oil and money in exchange for friendship and a place to launder money made from other illegal activities. One of the biggest recipients of this project was Nicaragua. Nicaragua is a country that's also going through a troubling political crisis, fighting against a corrupt dictatorship under a man named Daniel Ortega, who, like his counterpart and close friend Maduro, rigged elections and brutally represses protests to his decades of consolidated rule alongside his wife Rosario Murillo, who, funny enough, serves as the country's vice president. Can't make that up. For about 10 years, Nicaragua received billions of dollars from Venezuela as a part of a program of patronage. So as the country heads towards presidential elections next year, I thought it might be interesting to take a closer look at the parallels between Nicaragua and Venezuela to determine whether these parallels are by coincidence or by design. To answer this question, I'm joined in this episode by Ryan Berg, a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I came into this interview knowing next to nothing about Nicaragua, but I understand much more thanks to Ryan's clear explanation of how the country got to where it is now. So I'm confident you will too after listening to this edition of the State of Venezuela featuring Ryan Berg. Joining me today is a political scientist and research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a public policy think tank based in Washington, D.C., where he focuses on transnational organized crime, narco-trafficking, and illicit networks. He also studies Latin American foreign policy and development issues, so he has a very firm understanding of the inner workings of the hemisphere, writing extensively on everywhere from Mexico to Brazil and, of course, on Venezuela. So with that, it's my great pleasure to introduce Ryan Berg. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thanks for having me on, Rafael. I'm super pumped to be here. So, Ryan, as we get started here, I'd like to hear a bit about your background. What ultimately led you to your current position at AEI, using the acronym here, and your concentration in Latin America? I began my academic career as a political theorist, and I was doing papers and going to conferences on some pretty uh, heady philosophical topics. Um, I wrote my PhD dissertation on the concept of virtues and governance. So I was pretty uh, up in the clouds, I would say, uh, not exactly doing public policy research. And uh, uh, after about the first year of my PhD, I realized that uh, this was not uh, necessarily the professional trajectory that I wanted to take, even if it was um, the academic trajectory that I was on. And so I made a very conscious decision to switch uh, to a more uh, public policy based focus. Uh, I stopped going to all the conferences uh, in my political theory field. I stopped worrying about uh, publications uh, in journals that were not uh, very widely read. And I started doing uh, stuff that was more public policy focused, uh, specifically in Latin America, 
because I thought it was the region where uh, my governance focus in political theory had some of the greatest application. And it had some of the greatest application in the sense that um, when I looked at the region, I was very interested and, and absolutely fascinated by topics like uh, how criminal groups in the region were able to use certain governance concepts that you would study on a theoretical or philosophical level to be able to provide things for uh, the local populations over whom they rule and to buy that loyalty and that allegiance and to thereby uh, sort of consolidate their control. I found these things really fascinating. And so I, I found uh, political theory to be a very helpful or useful lens uh, through which to look at a lot of the issues and challenges and public policy uh, choices that, that the region faced. It just seemed like such a natural fit, political theory and, uh, and Latin America. I have to agree. It seems like Latin America is very unique in the sense that in the greater realm of international politics, Latin American politics seems to be a region where institutions are only as strong as the leaders themselves. And so it seems like overnight, regardless of where we, uh, where we pick on the map throughout the, uh, the hemisphere in Central or in South America, the democracy can be dismantled overnight if these institutions are subverted and corrupted. And that seems to be the case in some of the countries that you look at today, correct? That's right. Things move quickly. Uh, very few countries in the region have, you know, true, fully consolidated uh, democracy uh, with institutions that are are cleaned out of, of corruption. And so um, there's always some fragility with which you're dealing um, in, in Latin America when you look on an institutional level. So it's not just criminal groups, but it's democracies that aren't fully consolidated. Um, it's, uh, it's judiciaries that aren't fully independent. Um, it's electoral systems that often end up uh, generating uh, uh, interests that are completely um, at odds with executives. The list goes on and on, but there are plenty of, of institutional dilemmas and institutional fragility. Um, and then the issue of criminal groups in the region uh, to make a political theorist uh, at heart uh, uh, very well employed. Right. And it seems like a lot of these different countries, even in the case of Venezuela, based on what we've spoken about throughout several different episodes in this podcast, the country itself has been subverted almost entirely by a kind of political mafia taking control of the state. But pivoting to other parts of the region, specifically Nicaragua, I wanted to take a look at this country in particular because it's a country that I don't know that much about, admittedly, but it seems like it's the perfect case study for not only Venezuela being an importer of different outside elements like Russia, Cuba, China, and Iran, but also being an exporter of its own revolutionary ideology and how it is taking control of countries like Nicaragua. So first and foremost, I want to ask you, Ryan, what led to your interest in uh, Nicaragua itself? Well, I was interested in um, specifically the uh, sources of authoritarian resilience in the region writ large, which of course brought me to Venezuela, to Cuba, and finally to Nicaragua. And I felt like Nicaragua was the country that didn't get uh, as much attention as both Cuba and Venezuela it needed more attention uh, paid to it. And, and I thought uh, specifically that the, the uprising, which started in April of 2018, uh, in response to uh, cuts to the pension system uh, unexpectedly uh, in Nicaragua, I, I thought that this citizen movement uh, really had a, a great chance at creating some, uh, some real change in the country. 
um, if it wouldn't have been so brutally uh, repressed. And so I took great interest uh, in the in the country when I don't think that many people in Washington did. And ever since then, I've really been trying to elevate the profile um, of Nicaragua and, and Nicaragua's political crisis um, in, in the minds of policymakers in D.C. because I think, uh, moreover, that the U.S. government specifically can make a huge difference uh, if it makes the, the right policy decisions and takes the right actions to pressure uh, cronies in the Ortega regime. Right. I think that U.S. policymakers at large need to emphasize that, um, of course, I'm sure they understand that we collectively are not a monolith. You know, each country has its own set of problems, its own institutional framework, or, or perhaps lack thereof in the case of Nicaragua and Venezuela. But the situation is different because even though we're seeing instances of democratic backsliding in both countries, it's occurring by virtue of different circumstances. So how is Nicaragua different from Venezuela and perhaps from other countries that you're currently researching in the region? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think uh, one of the things that I would say is that uh, although you have um, outside influence in, in Nicaragua, it's not quite to the same extent as you have in, in Venezuela, for example. Uh, one of the biggest differences, I would say, is uh, you know, Cubans are, are on the ground uh, in, in Nicaragua, but I feel as though um, Ortega's hold on power is, uh, at the moment, um, and in times outside of this moment, uh, usually uh, not dependent on um, or, or, or to the same extent dependent upon uh, Cuban uh, influence and other outside influence as Maduro's might be in Venezuela. I think that's one of the big differences as well as you, you have much more of a great power competition playing out uh, in Venezuela. You have Russia there, you have China there, Iran, Turkey even has a presence. Uh, it, it's really a, um, a, a mixing of quite a few powers, whereas Nicaragua is a much smaller uh, less paid attention to country. And, and I just don't think you have that same uh, presence of great powers um, on the ground uh, vying for influence uh, as you do in Venezuela. And so uh, as a result, you have a leader who uh, has found other ways to, uh, to, to remain in power, such as corrupting his own uh, uh, institutions, moving them in his favor, buying off political parties, buying off quite a few uh, opposition uh, air quotes, of course, here, opposition figures. And, and it's just a much different, uh, I would say, uh, form of, of retaining power uh, than in Venezuela, even if uh, the results for protesters on the ground uh, might be the same, which is security forces in your face, massive human rights abuses, um, and economic decline. Right. I think in some senses, they absolutely do play from the same authoritarian handbook. There's no question about that. But my first impression when I was reading your report, which, by the way, for my listeners, I will be posting a link to this report. It's very well done, has an executive summary for those of you who don't want to read all of it, although I recommend that you do so. It's Restoring Democracy in Nicaragua, Escalating Efforts Against the Ortega Murillo Regime. And as I was reading it and doing a little bit of outside research on my own, there are two things that really stood out to me, Ryan. Number one, was there doesn't seem to be this sort of exodus that we've seen from Venezuela like there is in Nicaragua. And some parts of the United States, you see that there are a lot of Central Americans that come from Guatemala or from Honduras, but really not that many from Nicaragua. And you don't see 
the levels of hyperinflation that uh, that you've seen in Venezuela. So, how about this? How why is all of this happening now, apart from the pensions reform? And what would you say accounts for the fact that there's really not been an exodus, and Nicaraguans have pretty much stayed put? Well, I would dispute that a little bit. Um, you don't see the same overall numbers of people leaving because Nicaragua is just a far smaller country uh, in a different part of the region. It's it's not quite at the at the five million uh, and counting mark because that would be almost the entire country uh, of of Nicaragua. But uh, the United Nations uh, a few months ago, you know, certified that one hundred and twenty thousand Nicaraguans had left uh, the country. Some of them had come to the United States. Uh, perhaps not to Texas as much as they've gone to Miami, for example, um, and and to other places. But but they are leaving the country. Others are going to uh, to Costa Rica, uh, to Panama, to, uh, to to other countries like Mexico in the region where they where they might have family or or other types of links. Um, there is an exodus uh, of people from uh, from Nicaragua. But you're right in in saying that it's not as dramatic um, as the and, and paid attention to as the exodus out of Venezuela. Uh, but uh, as to the, the sources of this crisis um, and, and why this precipitated starting in, in 2000, April 2018, um, it really has to do with some of the pillars, uh, I would say, of Ortega's control. He not only controlled quite a bit of Nicaraguan society and, and the political institutions there, but his model of economic growth was really dependent upon um, quite a bit of loan uh, support that he would get from the big multilaterals, such as the World Bank, uh, sometimes from the IMF, and uh, especially from uh, CABE, which is the Central uh, American uh, Bank of Economic Integration. Um, these loans would, would, would sort of give his, uh, his bloated bureaucratic state, his crony state, um, a, an economic lifeline. Uh, and when some of those sources were cut off, and when USAID uh, funding started uh, to, to decline, uh, one interesting bit of this story is just how much money the United States was giving to Nicaragua over the years in hopes that it would reform, uh, in hopes that it would build uh, genuine democratic grassroots movements. Uh, none of this ever came to fruition and it ended up being, uh, you know, money from, uh, for the Ortega regime. And the biggest source of funding, the, the spigot that really shut off was the, the, the Venezuelan regime uh, through Pedro Caribe and, and other programs where, um, you know, oil dollars from the state-owned enterprise PDVSA were being shared with uh, with Nicaragua for development projects, uh, some of which never came to fruition. Uh, there are open fields, empty fields, uh, where some of these oil refineries and other sorts of uh, public works uh, were supposed to be built. And so that money ended up just being uh, layered uh, through banks and through other financial machinations into the coffers of the Nicaraguan state uh, and of course, used to perpetuate not only Daniel Ortega's rule on, uh, a firm grip on power, but also to satisfy all of the the folks in his party, the the uh, Sandinista Party. So once those sources of funding started to cut off, there was really a, a, a crisis for Ortega, and that meant that he had to make this decision, which was very unexpected for Nicaraguans, to reform the pension system which uh, in practice would have meant a, a smaller pension. Now, it doesn't look so good on social media when uh, elderly Nicaraguans come into the streets of Managua to protest pension cuts uh, and you, you rough them up. The country had already had a sort of restive 
student population that was uh, immediately uh, jumping on this uh, and defending Nicaragua's uh, elderly population. Uh, and from there, things really spun out of control from, uh, from Ortega's point of view. Right. It seems like the final straw there came with that pensions reform. Um, I want to go back to something that you had mentioned before, Brian, uh, about the Sandinistas. I think that um, I think it's equally important that we take a look back at the history. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the Sandinista front that uh, that got into power during the 80s. Sure. So let's, uh, I'll just note that uh, Sandino is a, um, a, a historical figure who transcends, uh, obviously, this party um, uh, that Daniel Ortega uh, was, was really present for at, at the beginning um, of, of the party that roots back to uh, the early 1960s, uh, largely a, a Marxist uh, peasant movement. And what they were really struggling against uh, at, at the time of their creation uh, was a, a, a dictatorship, a, a familial dictatorship in Nicaragua of, of the uh, Samosas. Uh, they were struggling in particular against the, uh, the third Samosa, Antonio, uh, Anastasio, uh, rather, uh, a Samosa de Bail. Um, and they really started having the most amount of success uh, in their revolutionary struggle uh, in the 1970s. And there, there are a couple critical moments uh, before they come to power uh, that, I, that I'd like to highlight. Uh, the first um, kind of highlights uh, an early uh, uh, entree into that nexus, uh, that Bolivarian nexus that you, that you mentioned. There's a critical point um, in 1978 when the uh, uh, revolutionary peasant or Marxist uh, uh, guerrilla movement Sandinismo is close uh, to being able to topple um, the regime of, of Anastasia Somoza de Bail. But there are three divergent strands of ideas as to how to resist, um, what would constitute a revolutionary action, and also just general ideology. And there, there's a critical intervention that comes in 1978 um, at the hands of none other than Fidel Castro. Castro uh, uh, helps uh, the Sandinista movement uh, unify its divergent strands in 78. And sure enough, in 79, uh, the, the strands uh, are unified. They march on Managua. Uh, Samosa is deposed uh, shortly thereafter. I think he flees first to Miami and then later to Paraguay. He's killed um, in Paraguay by, uh, by assassins sent by the Sandinistas. But there's that critical intervention there that portends a, a greater uh, uh, cooperation uh, with Cuba and, and later uh, with Venezuela. Now, during the 80s, um, the Sandinistas ruled the country uh, with, a, with a ruling junta in which um, Daniel Ortega was, uh, was the head of the junta. Um, he's not uh, and, and wasn't at the time a, uh, a very natural uh, leader or an obvious choice for, for who should uh, lead this junta. Uh, by nature, he's he's more of a recluse. He's he's a quiet, uh, wily, uh, uh, not very social, I would say, individual. And so he wasn't a natural choice. But he emerged um, as the um, as the leader of the of the junta. And later in uh, the 1980s, you have, of course, the rise of uh, U.S. backed contra movement, or those who were against uh, the Sandinista revolution. 
um, in Nicaragua. Some of them were, were folks who never agreed with the Sandinistas in the first place. Others were, were folks in uh, Somoza's military, folks who just couldn't get on board with the Sandinistas or who were outright threatened uh, by, their, by their rule. And, and that's a separate uh, moment in, uh, in the history of, of the junta. It's you know, how the U.S. Uh, fought back against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua was by supporting uh, the Contras uh, throughout the, the entire 1980s. So Ortega is, is the head of the junta. Um, in the 80s, uh, but he's also dealing with uh, this important uh, counter movement that's supported by the United States. Right. And I think that it's important for the listeners to understand that this was in the middle of the Cold War. So as you can imagine, with an ideological struggle going on as well, America wasn't about to let another country fall into the sort of like the communist sphere of influence, we can say. Um, And I think that that might a tribute to why Ronald Reagan decided to make what I think some would call it controversial, um, which of course I'm referring to the Iran-Contra affair. So I'm wondering if you could maybe summarize what the Iran-Contra affair was, because at the very least, I would say it maybe helped lionize this Sandinista movement for those who really believe in this notion of a, um, of a movement of anti-imperialism in Nicaragua. Yeah, so uh, it's important to note, as you mentioned, the, the, the overlay of great power competition that was taking place um, at the time, uh, uh, part of the thinking uh, at the time, there, were, there was still the strategic idea of, of, the, of the domino effect, um, that if, if one country uh, in a particular region happened to fall uh, under this way of communism, it could have this sort of um, this uh, cross-border effect or, or call it an export uh, effect that you know, whole regions could fall. Um, like Domino's, uh, Nicaragua is, is pretty darn close to the United States. And so I think that um, in many ways, the Reagan administration felt like uh, the, the Sandinista movement was, uh, was a threat to the security of the United States within this broader framework of, of great power competition that was the Cold War. And in the process of uh, trying to support the Contras uh, in Nicaragua, um, the uh, Congress um, ended up forcing the administration's hand. They, they passed something called the Boland Amendment, um, I believe in the Defense Appropriations Act of 1982. Um, that was a unanimous uh, uh, piece of, uh, of legislation uh, that was passed. And, and the Boland Amendment basically prohibited uh, outright U.S. support for, uh, for the Contras um, as, uh, as U.S. policy. So it basically made the statement that the U.S. would not uh, interfere anymore, would not give any more overt support uh, or funding to uh, to the Contras that it, that it was prohibited. Uh, the Reagan administration, um, in seeking to uh, to flout that uh, that amendment to the, to that particular piece of, of legislation, used a, a very um, used a very tricky mechanism. Uh, basically, uh, there were. There were weapons being sent uh, to to the Iranians uh, who were under arms embargo um, as a, a matter of negotiating uh, hostage releases um, in in Lebanon, and some of those funds in 1985 were diverted from uh, from U.S. coffers to uh, support the Contras on the ground uh, in Nicaragua in a way that seemed to violate the Boland Amendment, and so it's this really complicated wheel. Um, that involves Iran and involves uh, hostage, neg- complex hostage negotiations um, uh, from 
uh, by um, American diplomats uh, for Americans who had been held hostage by Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, and diverting some of those funds to, uh, to, to rebel groups, the Contras in Nicaragua. The Reagan administration, uh, of quite famously, the, the president was able to uh, defend himself by saying that these um, that this scheme had had gone on uh, well below his uh, his his level of, of attention. It, it was staffers who basically cooked this thing up, um, and and you get a number of, of staffers either uh, either indicted uh, or sort of dragged before Congress and a couple investigatory uh, uh, committees, but the president himself, you know, he took a hit in terms of his, uh, his popularity for a little while, uh, but he was largely untouched by, uh, by Iran-Contra. The last thing I'll say is that, you know, I think that this, um, you know, the, the Iran-Contra affair uh, really kind of dominates the, the U.S. imagination when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to Nicaragua. This is something that I discovered um, in conducting uh, quite a bit of research about the country, it's, it's really one of the only things that Americans can uh, can can name about the country because it's this you know highly uh, highly scandalous you know polarizing uh, moment uh, that you know that happened in the not too distant past that really you know dominates the imagination uh, of the country when um, it's it's so far beyond that. I mean, the, the country has moved on. Uh, so much since since those days. I, I mean, Nicaragua, of course, um, that it's it's really not you know the best prism uh, to to see things through. But you still get politicians in the United States. Um, you know, I recall just uh, last year when when Sanders uh, was asked a couple foreign policy questions, uh, all of a sudden Iran Contra popped back up, and and we were talking about the Contras again. Um, it, it just seems like one of those things that never really fully goes away. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the absolute slightest. I mean, here I am a Venezuelan. I can tell you that Venezuelans, we deal with the exact same thing with officials that continue to obfuscate the issue by throwing out, but sanctions, but sanctions. So I would say that it's almost like Nicaragua's Iran contra affair is our version of, or their version of our sanctions bit. Basically the sort of bit that is used to paint a broad brush over what is really a complicated situation. So. I completely understand where the frustration might lie, even with someone from Nicaragua who wants to see policy pushed forward, but is continually uh, confronted with this uh, this obstacle of obfuscation that doesn't allow the that doesn't allow the, the conversation to proceed as it should. Yeah, that's right, and I, I think talking about the biggest misunderstandings or, or these persistent issues that that really just uh, don't go away uh, for, for particular countries. I, I think in all of my work on, on Venezuela, uh, it's, as you mentioned, it's really the sanctions issue. There, there are a lot of folks who would love uh, to give U.S. sanctions, both individual targeted sanctions and those broader-based uh, sectoral sanctions, uh, a bad name by ascribing to them uh, really the entire fall um, in, the, in the country's economic uh, activity and economic output, uh, when nothing could really be further from the truth, I, I think that's ascribing way too much power uh, and capacity uh, to, to, to U.S. sanctions. Uh, I think if U.S. sanctions had the type of power that some people who want to malign them believe that they have, uh, I think that there would already be a political transition um, in a country like Venezuela, because if, if our sanctions were really uh, that crippling, 
uh, we we would have been you know largely uh, responsible for um, for helping a political transition transpire. But unfortunately, you know that's not the case uh, for the millions of suffering uh, Venezuelans. Our, our our sanctions really don't. Our, our sanctions certainly can bite, but they don't go nearly as far um, as ven- as poor Venezuelan public policy does when it comes to explaining economic decline. But unfortunately, uh, there's this persistent idea that you know sanctions uh, are to blame, and I and I think it's it's more of a cheap political tool than it is um, an academically rigorous argument uh, to say that that sanctions are to blame. But nevertheless, we see this argument pop up over and over again, uh, sometimes in uh, even in the form of research reports that circulate among policymakers uh, in the United States and abroad. Uh, there was a recent research report last year. Um, which claimed that U.S. sanctions, uh, I think, completely unethically, because there was no data to support this, the report claimed that U.S. sanctions uh, contributed directly to the deaths of 40,000 Venezuelans. I think this is a very irresponsible thing uh, uh, to, to say with, without the data, because it, it really you know, confuses the conversation. And also it gives uh, a dictator like Maduro a very easy data point to grasp at and say, you know, hey, look, even uh, academics in the United States are saying that sanctions are to blame here. None of this is on me. And these these are big name figures who are on this report. I mean, Jeffrey Sachs, a, a, an economist at Columbia University, um, is is somebody who, who is widely known and, and respected within academia. And, and this paper is you know circulating with with his name on it. So this was a big uh, issue, and it's and it's a persistent one. But but it's probably the most uh, misunderstood issue when it comes to U.S. policy uh, in the region is, you know, just what the impact of sanctions are um, on individual countries. And, and, and they're not the kind of, you know, crippling tools that many people like to uh, ascribe to them. They're more of a, a nudging tool uh, than they are a complete crippling tool. In many cases, uh, the governments on whom we uh, on which rather we, we levy sanctions do quite a bit of damage to themselves uh, through poor public policy choices. No, I completely agree. Um, out of curiosity, which institute was it that released that uh, or published that report? It was the Center for Economic Policy uh, Research. Uh, oh, of Jeffrey course. Sachs was, yes, Jeffrey Sachs was one of the authors um, on that report, um, but the, the other was Mark, uh, Mark Weisbrot. Of course it was. Uh, listeners, it's very important for me to point out that there are individuals in the United States and in the Western world that for whatever reason continue to, maybe because they still romanticize uh, what was the brief success of the Bolivarian Revolution because it was uh, its policies were implemented at a time when oil prices were at an all-time high. So Chavez sort of had the authority and the ability to do whatever he darn well pleased with the money that was coming into the state through oil revenues. But for some people, unfortunately, maybe they say this in good faith because they've seen episodes like that of Nicaragua, where they are uh, legitimately afraid of another episode of, you could say, imperialism at work or intervention at work. And I would say maybe they're complacent in their um, in their lack of doing any further research but then at the same time, the folks over at the CEPR, I'm very familiar with them because I think they contribute very much so in their complicitness of the sort of damage that they do, not just to the country, but to the credibility of the Venezuelan people by 
really dismissing our very real fight for democracy as mere regime change or damage by sanctions. And it really makes it harder for those of us wanting to share our stories with the outside world, assuming that we have no agency of our own. Yeah, the, the paper for, uh, for listeners is called Economic Sanctions as Collective Punishment, The Case of Venezuela by Mark Weisbrot and, uh, and Jeffrey Sachs. And that, that 40,000 figure was really circulating quite prominently around, um, around Washington for a couple months. The report was done in April of 2019, um, so it's a little over a year old now. It was immediately met, uh, quite thankfully, by, uh, by pushback, by outrage. Um, uh, Danny Bahar at the uh, Brookings Institution did a fantastic um, rebuttal. Uh, Ricardo Hausman um, at Harvard, uh, another you know, colleague and friend, um, did a, a great rebuttal in America's Quarterly as well, um, showing uh, just how much economic decline uh, was, was in Venezuela before the United States had even imposed a, a single sanction. Um, so uh, I'm not going to speculate as to the motives, um, but I, I definitely think that the effect that they have is, as you mentioned, to, to take away agency, to imply that, um, that Venezuelans shouldn't have anything to complain about, um, uh, that, that any sort of desire for political transition is, is that dirty word regime change. Um, you know, and, and lastly, uh, to give an easy crutch or, or repost to, uh, to, to any of the challenges that the United States uh, makes against, against these regimes uh, when they can simply say, oh, it's imperialism, it's interventionism. Um, you know, these are just the Yankees doing what they always do uh, in the region. It, it really does play into that um, a pretty debilitating uh, narrative for those on the ground in these countries that have to live uh, the realities uh, that they do and, and want political change. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And I've actually read that, uh, that report. And I will reiterate that same report for my listeners who want to read a rebuttal to any lingering notions that this is somehow unilaterally the fault of the United States when I've had guests on before that have themselves pointed out that they had been living in dire economic conditions prior to any sanctions being carried out. Uh, pivoting back to Nicaragua, Ryan, has that been the experience for you as well? Maybe some of the misconceptions of sanctions that have been slapped on to officials of the Ortega regime? You know, surprisingly, um, there, there have been some, um, as, as there always are when you're discussing a strategy of, of escalating sanctions, synchronizing them, and, and more effectively targeting them. But I think that by and large, uh, support for sanctions uh, in Nicaragua has been pretty widespread. Um, and so far, one of the major differences between um, the sanctions on Nicaragua and those on Venezuela are, are just the scope, the, the, the size of the architecture that we've built on Venezuela uh, uh, just completely um, uh, blows the, the, the scale and the architecture that we've built around Nicaragua, it blows it out of the water. There, there have only been about 22 individual designations um, in Nicaragua and, and eight designations on entities. So when you're talking about scale and scope, uh, it's nothing compared to the almost 200 individuals uh, and the many entities that have been sanctioned uh, in, in Venezuela. So in Venezuela, they're much more broad, broad brush, um, economically based, and, and they're sectoral as well as, as targeted an individual. Um, in Nicaragua, it's been mostly just targeted an individual. So we're not getting into, uh, not yet at least, into uh, you know hitting 
Nicaraguan exports, uh, imports, minerals, resources, uh, these, these kinds of things that, that tend to make people uh, a little bit more uh, wary of sanctions to start making the argument that sanctions are having you know, a real human toll um, on, on, on people's uh, daily lives. And we're not quite at that point yet uh, in Nicaragua. And one of the polls, moreover, that I cite in the paper actually shows uh, quite a bit of support on the ground uh, for sanctions in Nicaragua, even if it would mean um, a crumbling economy. And, and so um, I cite a poll from uh, uh, not too long ago, uh, which said that somewhere between 60 and 65% of the Nicaraguan um, uh, people support uh, sanctions on uh, Ortega officials um, uh, and those in and around his orbit who help support his regime, even if it meant a uh, declining economy uh, in the short term. So for, for them um, in that poll, it, it was more important to have U.S. Uh, and outside backing pressure um, to try to get some uh, form of free and fair elections uh, next year than it was the country's short-term economic performance. I found that poll to be really, uh, really revealing uh, in terms of its support for a greater amount of U.S. action. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all because there have been reports and have been polls that have likewise been conducted in Venezuela that seem to yield very similar results. And it adds further credence to this idea that, number one, the residents of these respective countries have agency to speak on their own behalf. And two, when they do so, they are very much supportive of the U.S. and its policy toward trying to overthrow these dictatorial regimes. So. Another parallel I wanted to point out, Ryan, and maybe you can help me expand on this, is Ortega's rise to power. So from what I understand, Daniel Ortega was the president of Nicaragua in the 80s. Then he was ousted, and that period followed um, a different government by a different political party in the 90s, all the way up until 2006, and at that time, he won the presidential elections in Nicaragua, correct? Yeah, that's right. So in, in 1990, um, the, uh, the, the, the aforementioned uh, Contra strategy from the U.S. perspective uh, works. Um, uh, it, it was effective, uh, effective as defined by uh, getting to elections. Um, Nicaragua, uh, under Daniel Ortega, or uh, acceded to uh, to elections. Um, uh, again, he had Fidel uh, whispering in his ear, "You know, don't go to elections. Um, whatever you do, don't go to elections." He went to elections because I think Ortega was uh, he was under pressure from the Contras, but he was also confident that uh, that he could pull something off. And uh, in a very surprising uh, victory, uh, Violeta Chamorro came in. Uh, and, and beat Ortega, uh, he stepped aside, but he didn't step aside uh, before uh, really sort of emptying out state coffers uh, in an event that I describe in my report that's called uh, La Piñata, um, just like the, uh, the, the sort of paper mache uh, figures that, um, you know, children smash open uh, at birthday parties and, and candy falls out, uh, Ortega felt that the Nicaraguan state should be treated uh, likewise. And uh, before leaving office, uh, the uh, country saw a massive uh, expropriation of wealth. Um, basically, the you know the a lot of the states 
state-owned enterprises were um, were raided, uh, uh, and and those resources uh, used to uh, to help him consolidate control over the Sandinista Party, uh, to finance that party uh, moving forward, and also just to to confiscate uh, a personal property. I mean, Ortega has multiple houses in Nicaragua, which which are confiscated from previously wealthy Nicaraguans uh, uh, who are still fighting to get uh, some of their property back. And, and he vowed during this point in time uh, to engage in a strategy that he called ruling from below or governing from below, um, which was to say uh, he would be a constant uh, thorn in the side of, of any efforts to move towards greater democracy uh, uh, in Nicaragua. Um, he would use uh, the country's uh, student groups, labor unions, and other uh, institutions that he had under his control uh, uh, to be a spoiler, uh, uh, to be someone who, who prevented uh, Nicaragua from moving on uh, from, from his legacy and eventually to plot his return. Uh, I think it took him longer than he expected. Um, 16 years is a long time in, in the political wilderness. Uh, but Ortega, is a, as I mentioned before, he's, he's an extremely wily figure. He's, he's a figure um, uh, who's plotting. He's, he's cerebral. Uh, he, he's, ca- he, he's cautious, but he's also aggressive. He waited for 16 years uh, to strike back and to, to retake the presidency, all the while, of course, plotting his return. And one of the things that I'd like to mention uh, in this story uh, a, a really critical turning point is another event in Nicaraguan history, uh, which is much debated even today, uh, called El Pacto, uh, the, the great pact uh, made between uh, the, the classic caudillo figure president of Nicaragua, Arnaldo Aleman, um, and Daniel Ortega. Uh, Aleman was, uh, in short, um, the, this caudillo type of figure, a very corrupt individual uh, had a number of corruption allegations hanging over his head. And in in exchange for um, uh, immunity, he essentially gave Ortega a a massive electoral advantage, which is to say he agreed to uh, allow the presidency of Nicaragua to be won uh, by a mere 35% of the vote, provided that the top vote getter was at least five percentage points ahead of the next highest vote getter. And conveniently for Ortega, at this point in time, uh, he was polling in the 30% range. So this basically gave him um, a a, a clear shot um, at returning to the presidency when in previous elections, when he had run for president, uh, he wasn't able to consolidate enough of the vote to be able to return to the presidency. Uh, And so this, uh, the the, the pacto, the El Pacto was, was far greater than this, but the, this is the most important bit of the, of, of the Pacto, is the, um, the exchange of immunity from corruption charges uh, for electoral reform uh, in favor of Ortega. And sure enough, in 2006, uh, he comes back into power with just 38% of the vote. He wins in the first round because he's ahead of the next highest uh, vote-getting candidate, there are all sorts of allegations of fraud. There are all sorts of allegations of votes that are not counted in certain regions of the country where there wouldn't have been a, a, a single vote um, in favor of Ortega. But nevertheless, uh, he returns to power in 2006 and he's inaugurated uh, in 2007. And 13 years later, we are still living uh, with an Ortega presidency. Um, only now we have Ortega as president. 
and we have his wife, Rosario Murillo, as vice president. So it's a, it's a sort of house of cards situation going on there down in Managua. That's unbelievable. There are so many parallels in, um, in what you just said, too, with uh, Chavez's rise to power, although Chavez didn't rise to power through any sort of uh, pact or power sharing agreement or anything like that. But what he did do, just like Ortega from the beginning, was launch a series of tactics to try and consolidate his rule that has been going on for decades now. Um, and then something else I wanted to ask if you could expand on, because I found this to be really interesting in your report as well, the uh, the Turbas, because the Turbas kind of remind me of the Venezuelan colectivos. Yeah, that's right. So um, uh, after the April uh, uprising, um, one of the, the means of control and, and ways that the uh, Sandinistas, particularly Daniel and Rosario, were able to stay in power uh, was by using uh, paramilitary groups to uh, to rain terror down on on restive um, opposition uh, held communities um, in places like Masaya and and a little bit around uh, Granada and, and in Managua and from what I've heard uh, from from very good sources on the ground and from what I've seen uh, reported out of of many of the human rights groups and democracy watcher groups uh, in Washington is that. These paramilitaries were not only armed by, uh, by, by the Nicaraguan army and by uh, national police forces, uh, but they were also integrated, um, uh, integrated within police uh, patrols uh, on the ground in, in these communities. Uh, and they were also integrated uh, into the political party, the Sandinista political party itself. Uh, and so um, the control that was uh, offered by um, uh, by local mayors was instrumental, uh, really instrumental, to Daniel and Rosario hanging on um, in the sense that they were able to communicate strategy with, with local Sandinista mayors on the ground to coordinate paramilitary uh, operations. And, and these groups were as well, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, they were, they were integrated with uh, national police patrols. So alongside of uh, marked cars, uh, marked vehicles, rather, and, and marked individuals, Policia Nacional, you had unmarked individuals in uh, balaclavas or in ski masks um, with some pretty high-grade uh, military weapons um, engaging in significant human rights abuses uh, that nevertheless could not be attributed directly to the National Army or to the, Na to the Nicaraguan Army, to the, to the National Police. There was that layer of plausible deniability there that I think is very similar uh, to Venezuela, because you can say, well, you know, they were on the ground at the same time as the uh, as the national police, but you can see that they're not national police. They're not marked. You know, they're they're not in national police vehicles, or they're not in national police uniforms. Um, and nobody goes beyond that to say, well, they were using the same weaponry, the same caliber, the same tactics. Uh, and in some cases, we've heard stories, um, and this is well documented by Human Rights Watch and by the the OAS Commission on Nicaragua's uh, final report uh, that some members of the Nicaraguan army and the national police were, quote, on loan uh, to the paramilitary groups, uh, just in a sort of unmarked capacity. So this, this was definitely a, a, a key strategy in those phases of time when I think Daniel and Rosario felt like their grip on power might have been the most tenuous. They unleashed the full power of these marauding paramilitary groups. Um, and allowed them to wreak havoc 
on communities where there was a strong opposition presence. Right. And that opposition presence was the first thing, just like Chavez wanted to essentially intimidate from rising up and challenging his rule. Because once you're able to frighten, significantly frighten anybody who disagrees with your regime, then it becomes much, much harder to hear anybody protest or to have anything to say contrary to... um, to the regime itself. I've seen some of the videos of, of these turbas, these parapolicias, and it's so incredible how similar some of them look to the colectivos of Venezuela, because in Venezuela, you'll see some of them wearing t-shirts, helmets that hide their faces, and they always move on motorcycles. In Venezuela, we call them motorizados. So seeing some videos of those same exact groups in Nicaragua, it just Again, it just harkens back to this idea that there's just a lot of uh, parallels between the two countries in the way that both of these individuals seem to want to violently consolidate their power. Another thing that I want to ask, Ryan, is the, the political aspect of it. So I mentioned before that Ortega was trying to achieve a sort of political hegemony apart from social control. And in this instance, what he did was he basically took over in the same way that Maduro and Chavez did to some extent, the National Assembly in Nicaragua, right? Yeah. Uh, so he has a um, majority in the National Assembly, Sandinista Party, uh, and he's able to, uh, to, to, to pass reforms um, uh, pretty much at will. Uh, and this kind of institutional control was not just uh, present in the, uh, in the National Assembly, but of, of course it was over the the, the Nicaraguan army, the national police, um, and quite prominently over the judiciary. Um, there was a, a long notation in that previous uh, report that I mentioned, the OAS Commission on Nicaragua, uh, which mentioned uh, just how much executive influence there is over the, um, over the judicial branches in Nicaragua. And so uh, there were, uh, as a few cases in point, um, there was a, a, a Supreme Court Justice, uh, Rafael Solis, uh, who uh, resigned, uh, split with Ortega over uh, the issue of repression and resigned um, and spoke openly about uh, Ortega calling the judiciary and informing them uh, to what conclusions they were going to arrive at on particular cases. Um, there were other instances of uh, prosecutors uh, in local uh, 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 local prosecutors uh, who told stories of being forced to bring uh, trumped up charges against opposition members um, uh, in in order to keep their job. While there have only been, I think, three cases or four uh, brought against uh, police brutality, brought against individual police officers for police brutality and human rights abuses in the entire country. And and so this is, I think, indicative of the kind of, of control uh, that Ortega and and now Rosario have, have been able to consolidate in the country um, uh, for Ortega really over 13 years uh, since he since he's returned to power. Um, before uh, before I finish uh, responding, I, I think it's important also to, uh, uh, to to remember that some of the blame uh, lies outside of Ortega. Some of the blame uh, uh, rests with um, Folks who were in opposition movements, uh, folks who were um, 
ruling the country in the 16 years that Ortega was out of power uh, in not being able to uh, prevent his rise again, his return uh, to power. And, and that return could have been potentially, uh, the, the likelihood of that return could have been curtailed had Nicaragua taken, taken a different path, uh, a, a, a more deeply consolidated democratic path uh, uh, than it did. So I think some of the blame uh, lies with with some of the, the parties that ruled the country um, after Ortega's first presidency uh, in not being able to get Nicaragua to a, a, a state of deeper, more consolidated democracy. The last two times that he was voted into office were 2011 and 2016, right? Yeah, that's right. So the, the, the presidential uh, elections um, are every uh, five years. Uh, in 2011 and, tw- and 2016 were the most recent presidential elections for, uh, for Ortega, and the, the next one will be uh, November of 2021. Okay. Um, which, as you mentioned before, they are absolutely rigged because the plans that Ortega has carried out since returning to power in 2006 have led to Ortega and his wife, Murillo, essentially hijacking the country, not just through uh, political power, but also uh police power because he replaced the heads of the national police and the army the same way that they did in Venezuela to have them pledge allegiance to the regime as opposed to the country itself, right? Yeah. When Ortega was out of power, those 16 years that I mentioned, one of the uh, things that I think those who ruled the country cannot be faulted for uh, is is the state of the army and uh, and the police, which is to say you know, there, there really was a, a conscious effort, especially within the national, within the Nicaraguan army, to depoliticize it. Uh, and I think to a certain extent successful. Uh, the, the Nicaraguan army, even to this day, still has a, a reasonably good relationship with the United States. In many ways, uh, they participate in a lot of SOUTHCOM uh, activities side by side uh, with the United States. They even sent um, a ship um, or maybe even two vessels to Operation Orion, which is the most recent uh, Caribbean uh, naval exercises aimed at curtailing um, uh, narco trafficking out of out of Venezuela. Um, and, and I think the Nicaraguan army really valued these uh, bilateral relations with, uh, with with the United States. And and one of the things that uh, definitely allowed them to to engage in these bilateral exchanges was the fact that the, the army was uh, was depoliticized. It was on a much better path without Ortega in power. And this was something that um, was almost immediately reversed um, in 2007 after his inauguration uh, and has only gotten worse uh, uh, since. And uh, with the police, um, there's you know a major reform uh, that happens, uh, which allows uh, Ortega to consolidate his control along uh, around rather who is the head um, of the, the Nicaraguan uh, National Police um, and rules of engagement, uh, hiring practices, etc. Et it really runs very deep um, into the into the institution, and and this uh, as well is really a shame because Nicaragua had built a a, a community oriented uh, police structure that was uh, routinely. Uh, commended by other countries uh, in Central America for its relatively low levels of violence, uh, its relatively low levels uh, of corruption, uh, its effectiveness, um, its ability to deter crime. Uh, Nicaragua, for a long time, uh, had always touted touted itself 
um, as a country that that didn't suffer uh, as other countries in Central America do uh, from uh, from drug trafficking problems and and from the uh, the prominence of really violent uh, cartels operating on its territory. Um, and and for a long time, that uh, success was ascribed to uh, to the national police. Um, obviously, the the image of the police that I just described is uh, couldn't be further from the way that they're operating uh, now, which is of course a telltale sign. Um, of their corruption and, and their politicization. That's really unfortunate. I did read, um, I think it was in your report that, yeah, at one point, Nicaragua was, was one of the safest countries in Latin America as a whole. And so for it to have suffered such a backsliding in such a short amount of time is really, really upsetting. Oh, what I wanted to ask uh, really quick, Ryan, was just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, did you say that Nicaragua itself is also participating in the operation that was launched by Southcom to counteract uh, Venezuelan drug trafficking? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Nicaragua, if I'm not mistaken, sent uh, one vessel to Operation Orion. Um, and I think that it's explained um, fairly easily by the fact that uh, when Ortega came back into power in 2007, um, the U.S. was keen to uh, to move on, uh, to not um, uh, replay a great power competition uh, as it played out in Nicaragua in the 1980s um, with Ortega in power uh, again. And so there's a meeting, uh, I think, between President Bush and, and Ortega that takes place after he comes back in his second stint as president, where basically they agree to let bygones be bygones. And Ortega agrees that he's going to, to tune down uh, some of his anti-U.S., uh, anti-imperialist uh, rhetoric. Um, and the U.S. starts showering uh, Nicaragua with, uh, with money, uh, really turns the spigot on and starts giving, you know, USAID uh, funding, IRI, NDI, all the sorts of organizations and NGOs in and around uh, Washington uh, move to, uh, to, to try to rebuild a civil society there. Um, and Ortega, again, being the wily figure that he is, uh, realizes that one of the things that really matters to the United States is participation in these exercises. Um, it's really a way to, uh, to buy up a lot of goodwill with Washington, to check all the right boxes, uh, to make sure you're participating in the right event, to, to, to see and to be seen at, at the right events. Uh, Ortega knows that that is important. It, it earns him goodwill with the United States. It earns him at cachet, and so the United States would uh, uh, would would look the other way, um, uh, at least for a while, uh, if he was busy consolidating uh, control on on the domestic level. And sure enough, that's what happened. The, the United States really didn't significantly curtail uh, its funding through USAID uh, uh, until 2016-17. I mean, very shortly before the the April uh, uh, uprising. If you look at the report, I have a graph in there which shows year by year. Uh, how much money we were giving to Nicaragua. And even after some pretty problematic periods, including an election in 2016 that was very much rigged, um, we're still giving money uh, to groups on the ground in, in Nicaragua and, uh, and development funding to try to uh, uh, better things uh, in that country. And, and again, it it's really shows that Ortega knew how to check the right boxes, that goodwill would be built up by not being seen as the country in Central America with a drug trafficking problem, and participating uh, in regional military exercises. 
I got to be honest, Ryan, I'm a little shocked to hear that the that this regime, in spite of being part of this uh, Bolivarian revolutionary nexus, we can say, of countries that like to spout this rhetoric of anti-imperialism, are A, not only joining the United States in an operation to combat the sort of activity that Nicaragua itself is complicit in engaging in, but two, doing so to counteract an ideological ally. So my question here is, and this is really just sort of an initial gut reaction, we could say, but do you think that this is maybe an act that somewhat is a conflict of interest? Or or how do you reconcile with this idea that Nicaragua, who that is, you know, was once described by uh, former Ambassador John Bolton as part of the Troika of Tyranny, is at the same time helping the United States, an ideological enemy, combat in terms of drug trafficking one of its ideological allies in that troika of tyranny again i think that the participation was very quiet but it was recognized by the united states and i think from the nicaraguan point of view that that's all that really matters uh it's that goodwill that that built up goodwill over a number of years of 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 exchanges and participation in military exercises that the nicaraguans uh, are are after and it, i think they feel if they send one vessel uh, it really doesn't, you know, make that much of a difference when it comes to combating Venezuelan uh, state-sanctioned narco-trafficking, but it does make a big difference uh, for them when it comes to building goodwill with the United States. I, I think this was a, a key strategy of the Ortega regime over the years uh, was to keep that that spigot on from USAID and, and to keep building up the goodwill with the Americans, all the while uh, sort of consolidating things on the on the domestic level because. Ortega made a bet as to what the United States cared about most in the region. And I think uh, besides migration, uh, uh, he selected, uh, uh, he ticked the right boxes, which is participation in military exercises and being seen as a country uh, without a drug trafficking problem. Okay, that that makes a little bit more sense. And I think it's also important for uh, my listeners to understand a little bit more about not just the ideological alliances between Venezuela and Nicaragua, but also the history of Venezuelan patronage, which is why I also wanted to emphasize that question a little bit where I was initially taken aback. You wrote about this um, a bit in your report, Ryan, um, specifically the amount of Venezuelan aid that was given to Nicaragua through uh, it's, it's an existing oil alliance between a number of countries that was started in Venezuela, Petrocaribe. So I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on that economic relationship between uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela. Sure. Uh, I think from uh, from from the Venezuelan standpoint, um, it was really about you know, exporting this, uh, this Bolivarian uh, ideology, um, consolidating uh, a, a key ally uh, in the Central American uh, uh, region. Um, it wasn't an ally who could necessarily um, uh, offer them tons of, of, of strategic resources, uh, perhaps in the same way as, as other members uh, of the Bolivarian Alliance, uh, but it, it was a key ally uh, uh, nevertheless. And from Nicaragua's standpoint, uh, the spigot was open. Um, in terms of the amount of money that uh, the Venezuelans were willing to give them uh, for, you know, I'm doing air quotes again, but development purposes. Some of these projects, you know, might have come to fruition, but but many of them uh, didn't, as I mentioned earlier, uh, open fields, places that have that have never been developed at all and, and money that was layered 
through through banks uh, uh, into the personal coffers of the of, of the Sandinista Party, and some of it even into uh, Danielle's uh, personal pockets. The money uh, takes a, a, a really significant nosedive in 2017 with Venezuela's own uh, economic collapse. In 2014, uh, in U.S. Uh, millions of dollars, there's 502 million dollars uh, uh, worth of aid given from Venezuela uh, to Nicaragua, and by 2017, that snaps off. It goes from 502 to 31. Uh, and thereafter, it essentially uh, closes entirely uh, because uh, the the resources just aren't there. As as we all know, the uh, the Venezuelan state uh, is only producing about three hundred and eighty thousand barrels of oil per day. It's barely uh, it's not enough. It's, I shouldn't say barely enough. It's not enough at all to uh, to sustain its own population uh, at a, at a survival level, much less uh, to have the type of profits that Pedavesa had at that time to export uh, these uh, kinds of resources to other countries. And so one of the reasons why Nicaragua was in uh, the financial situation it found itself in in 2018, why why Ortega felt like he had to make the cuts that he did uh, was because uh, the patronage that had been there and that he had counted on for so many years uh, was cut off. It, it was cut off by necessity because of Venezuela's uh, economic collapse and, uh, and there was poor planning in uh, being able to find other resources to find as, as replacement for this lost revenue. Would you say, Ryan, that this, uh, this turning off as the, this drying up of the spigot, as, uh, as you describe it, is what maybe uh, prompted Ortega to be more open to expressing goodwill to the United States and participating in an exercise um, as, I don't want to say insignificant, but maybe as uh, little of a participation that, uh, in which it took part. But would you say that maybe there's a correlation between the turning off of the spigot in Venezuela and maybe a slight increase or the promise of increase in funds from USAID in the future? It's possible uh, that that had something to do with uh, with Ortega's calculus, but I, I don't know how much uh, USAID funding uh, played into uh, played into the calculus. So much as perhaps um, uh, Ortega thought that participation might um, buy him a bit more goodwill to uh, to be able to stave off some of the sanctions actions uh, against his his regime and and. Quite frankly, you know there there aren't that many sanctions, um, uh, individual or uh, or designated entities on Nicaragua, especially uh, if you're looking from the perspective of Nicaragua to uh, you know you're looking from Managua to Caracas. You can see uh, how sanctioned the country can get, uh, and you you know maybe you feel pretty good about your current situation uh, at 22 uh, overall uh, individual sanctions as opposed to almost 200. Wow. Yeah, that is a that is a great difference. Um, from what I read in your report, it seems like there is more that we can do in the United States to help restore democracy in Nicaragua. So I'm wondering if you could maybe summarize some of the recommendations that you wrote in your report, both in the immediate and uh, maybe medium term. 
Sure. So I separate uh, policy recommendations into three uh, chronological categories. First is the the immediate action. Um, second is the is the medium term action, and then there are some policy recommendations that I make uh, for the uh, for what I call long term action, and and they're defined as um, immediate action things which basically should have happened yesterday, uh, but but need to be done um, as soon as possible. Um, lo antes posible. And uh, medium-term action uh, is um, what I define as things that should start uh, in several months and should certainly be in place uh, by the end of, of this year. Uh, so for the, for the two most important immediate actions, what I recommend uh, is for um, U.S. diplomats uh, to, uh, to press the Nicaraguan opposition, uh, to set aside their major differences, and to unite um, in, a, in a coherent um, umbrella group uh, driven by a, um, an internal political process where they can arrive at a consensus candidate uh, and finally be able to present uh, not just opposition to the regime, but a real program for political reform. A, a real program to, uh, once they're in power, follow through on reforms that aim to um, uh, dismantle some of what I call in the report pillars of power, uh, pillars of control for uh, for the Ortega regime. Uh, that that really should be the uh, beyond winning an election. The goal here um, of of the opposition, and so I've been working um, uh, to 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 make sure that uh, that this happens. Of, of course. There are uh, really diverse interests. There are really uh, 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 some, you know, there's some bad blood uh, between um, uh, several different groups in the opposition, and it's going to take um, a lot to be able to keep them uh, united up until election day. But I think this is the most important thing that U.S. diplomats can do uh, is to make sure that um, that the groups uh, see the broader purpose here, which is the election next year and, and don't get too caught up in some of the individual rivalries um, and personalities on the ground. The second immediate term recommendation that I make is actually um, one on which I've gotten a lot of, of, of feedback, uh, mostly positive, which is to say that I think in order to show legitimacy um, and, and that it's not just politics uh, as usual and also as a mechanism for uniting uh, very disparate opposition groups, that the opposition should form what I call a national emergency committee. And that national emergency committee's role would be to fill the vacuum of leadership left by the Ortega regime. One thing we haven't talked about in this podcast yet is Nicaragua's disastrous response to the coronavirus, which is to say there's been really no response at all. Um, it's, it's been criminal uh, in terms of its level of negligence. He didn't show up... Um... This made major headlines internationally, but Ortega, for I think I don't know if this is attributed to coronavirus, but he didn't show up anywhere in national news outlets or in or for the press for like a whole month, right? Yeah, he eviscerated his previous uh, record for um, uh, for for not showing his face in in public. I think the um, the latest record is is something like thirty eight days uh, without uh, without showing his face in public, which is really. Uh, quite unprecedented, I think, for uh, for any president anywhere in the world, no matter what the regime type, um, you, you generally show your face more 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 frequently than uh, than once monthly. But Ortega has has completely disappeared from from the scene, and I think it would 
really behoove the uh, the opposition groups and move them more towards unity to, uh, to to form a national emergency committee to make policy recommendations uh, to combat the coronavirus to stimulate the economy uh, and it, it could help them form uh, better working relationships which could prove vital um, after uh, any sort of election in which they won to, to have those working relationships um, uh, already formed. And I think this this committee should have um, a whole bunch of other groups uh, inside of it. I think the, the Catholic Church should be a part of it since they've really been the tip of the spear um, in the fight to restore democracy uh, uh, in Nicaragua. They've been heavily persecuted. Uh, I think several uh, of the countries, uh, more than 20 medical associations, should be included in, in, in some decision-making in the National Emergency Committee because uh, they've really taken on a, um, a, a, a role of, of legitimacy like they've never had before because um, there really isn't any public health guidance coming out of the Ortega regime. And so people are looking to medical associations um, uh, as experts for, for how to live their lives during this very unsettling uh, and nervous uh, period of time. So those are the two really big um, uh, uh, immediate term recommendations that I make, and, and they mostly stem from uh, a really uh, uh, interesting and, and, and simultaneously disconcerting poll uh, that was released uh, a couple weeks before I released my report. And that poll showed that uh, the Sandinista party has about 23% support in Nicaragua. Um, and if, and nevertheless, that if the election were held today, uh, they would still win the election uh, by virtue of being um, one of the more uh, uh, popular parties in the country at present, but with only 23% of the vote. Uh, uh, so clearly there is a long way to go um, for the opposition to be able to build that credibility again uh, with people who are, are, are desirous uh, of change because that same poll showed that more than 60% of people in the country would not ascribe to any political party. That's how fed up they are with, with, with party politics um, uh, a, a, as usual. And so they have a long way to go, that is the opposition parties, to, to, to building up that credibility. And I think filling the vacuum of power would, uh, would, help, them, uh, would help them do that. In terms of some of the medium-term recommendations uh, that I make, I make a bunch of recommendations related to uh, targeting uh, for the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control. I make some points about the synchronization uh, of sanctions and the, the sequencing uh, of sanctions, that the, the order in which uh, we target individuals and entities uh, matters uh, and, and has to be synchronized with, uh, with events on the ground um, in order to create some of those schisms and fractures uh, that we're looking to create uh, within um, some of Ortega's uh, crony circles. Uh, I make uh, other points or other recommendations about resolutions within the uh, within the OES, um, basically establishing the uh, minimum expectations that the region has uh, for for Nicaragua's elections uh, next year, and again reiterating the importance um, of free and fair uh, democratic elections. Um, and I, I, I stress uh, the bipartisan nature uh, of the issue in, in the U.S. Congress and recommend. Uh, that there be um, a, a reiteration or, or a resolution passed through both houses of Congress, um, reiterating uh, the United States' interest uh, in a free 
uh, and prosperous democratic hemisphere and, and in particular the importance of Nicaragua's elections uh, next year. Right. Some of these recommendations, I think, uh, parallel or are comparable to those for or ascribed to Venezuela. Another contrast, however, that I wanted to quickly point out, though, is the international response. Um, the OAS, I think, has been a critical component to helping achieve the restoration of democracy for Venezuela, but I don't know to what extent that the international community has been effective in uh, enforcing any sort of pressure mechanisms, not just the OAS, but maybe the European Union or or neighbors to the north in Canada. And I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to the lack of or maybe the existence of an international coalition to coordinate some sort of response to the um, to the human rights abuses and just the general threat of the Ortega regime to the hemisphere. I think that the international coalition against the Ortega regime is in its nascence. This is something that the United States needs to focus on uh, with great aplomb. It needs to uh, make greater uh, and more concerted efforts to, uh, to, to building that coalition. Uh, the uh, Canadians, along with the United States, and now uh, entering the fore is uh, uh, the UK, uh, are really the only countries that have uh, have issued any sort of sanctions against individuals or entities in Nicaragua. So the sanctions architecture uh, really just isn't the same. Uh, the level of international pressure uh, isn't the same. Um, whereas we get a sort of torrent of sanctions out of OFAC, on Venezuela, it's more like a drip, drip, drip uh, when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to Nicaragua. And uh, I think that you know, getting the Europeans, uh, besides the United Kingdom, getting the European Union on board when it comes to to Nicaragua could make a huge difference. Uh, and I'm hopeful that with concerted U.S. effort, we can get there because uh, Josep Borrell, the uh, the EU's Commissioner for Foreign Policy uh, is very well versed uh, in Nicaragua. Uh, seemingly, he cares uh, about it uh, personally. Um, and uh, the Europeans have built a sanctions designation mechanism uh, for uh, for Nicaragua, even if they haven't used it yet. Uh, the, the architecture uh, to uh, to designate and enforce individual sanctions uh, on the Ortega regime uh, exists already. It's just a matter of pushing the Europeans uh, uh, to, to use it. And, and so I think this is going to take a lot of regional diplomacy. It's going to take a lot of world diplomacy uh, on, on the part of the United States. But I think this campaign really is just starting uh, in, a, in a way that, you know, with Venezuela, it's, it's just much more uh, developed. And one of the recommendations I make in the report is uh, a la Venezuela to actually appoint a special representative for Nicaragua, uh, a, a term limited or time limited appointment, um, at least through the 2021 elections, in order to coordinate all this policy, because I think there there needs to be someone who's dedicated full time uh, to, to this policy, this very important policy issue uh, in our hemisphere in a way that there there really isn't right now. And I think you know, that'll be one of the keys to, uh, to to getting freer and fairer elections next November. Right. I, I think, unfortunately, it does seem like Nicaragua has this tendency to mostly 
evade the spotlight, maybe in the same way that Ortega was was avoiding the spotlight during the initial breakout of the coronavirus. So uh, interestingly enough, there are some parallels there. But I think part of it is the fact that it lacks some of the geopolitical stakes that Venezuela finds itself in with the convergence of so many different non-state actors that are involved. And that actually brings me to one of my last questions, Ryan, Uh, pivoting slightly back to Venezuela. What impact, if any, do you think that the fall of the Maduro regime in Venezuela would have on the Ortega regime and by extension, the Sandinista front? I think it would have a pretty significant impact, which is to say, uh, right now, uh, attention is diverted elsewhere in the hemisphere to Caracas, I think if there there were a, a, a political transition transpired in uh, in Venezuela, it would certainly uh, free up some of that uh, that that space, that um, that policy expertise and personnel at state to be able to focus uh, uh, more intently on a country like Nicaragua. I think Ortega has benefited from a, a U.S. focus on Venezuela because he's, as you mentioned in your question, he's been able to slide under the radar for, for quite a bit of, of time now. And, and really, you know, we only think about Nicaragua um, uh, when there is a, a sort of sanctions designation that comes down from OFAC, which is to say once every, every six weeks or eight weeks or so. Um, and, and I think the, the first and most important effect would be uh, you would just have a lot more a concerted U.S. effort and pressure aimed at the at the regime in a way that there isn't now, uh, short of hiring more personnel. What do you make also of of sanctioning Daniel Ortega himself? I'm on record as saying that I think uh, Ortega should be sanctioned. I think he should be sanctioned under the auspices of the uh, Global Magnitsky Act for gross human rights violations and abuses. Uh, I think that there's plenty there to to look into, money that stretches all the way back to the incident of La Piñata. There, there's plenty of uh, of things we can go after, uh, assets that we could we could freeze and, and possibly confiscate. So I think that the designation uh, would be uh, completely 100% uh, justified. I've, I've written in the American Interest uh, back in, in January of, of last year that uh, I think that we should sanction him under those auspices of the Global Magnitsky Act. I think the piece was called, um, it's time to sanction uh, Ortega under the Global Magnitsky Act. So it was a, a very clearly worded title. And I mentioned it again in the uh, in the report. I, I think that it sends uh, exactly the right signal to um, other countries in our hemisphere, which is to say that the, the only uh, type uh, of government that uh, is is justified in this hemisphere as per the inter-American democratic charter is a free and fair democracy and that your type of, of human rights abuse, uh, violence uh, and political corruption has no place uh, in our shared neighborhood. Right. And I think the same case could be made for his wife, Rosario Murillo, right? That's right. And, and she's already been uh, sanctioned under under different auspices, under uh, some legislation that was passed by, uh, by the Congress, as well as uh, executive orders. Um, there could be more uh, to, to go after uh, there, but but she has already been hit uh, by by sanctions herself, as well of a co- as well as a couple of her close um, advisors. That's good to hear. Very very good to hear. 
yeah, I, I had read some stories about her and it, and my goodness, what a, <laughs> these people really do need to go. Um, one of the last questions I also wanted to ask here, Ryan, just for the sake of the namesake of this podcast, I'd like to quickly get your thoughts on the outlook in Venezuela. So we've talked a lot about different aspects of the situation in Venezuela itself. And I'm wondering if you were to ascribe a certain recommendation or set of recommendations for Venezuela, what do you think could be done looking ahead to help achieve the restoration of democracy there and, you know, achieve the ousting of Maduro? Well, I think, um, first and foremost, there's plenty of runway left when it comes to tightening the sanctions net. Uh, that's been placed around the country. There's plenty of sanctions, evasions. Seemingly, we discover new schemes every week, new machinations, new bagmen, uh, much like uh, much like Alex Saab uh, for, uh, for for flouting our, our sanctions uh, regime. Much like with Nicaragua, I think we can target, coordinate, synchronize, and sequence uh, those sanctions much better. So having a strategy for for actually uh, inducing some of the cracks uh, or schisms in the regime that uh, that, w- that we expected uh, to be able to, uh, to to break that country uh, induce a, a political transition but I, I think really uh, the the policy is entering a time when uh, when we need a rethink we need a really grand uh, a rethink and I don't have all the answers but there's a big event that's not too far away uh, and that is upcoming uh, elections which will be boycotted uh, by the opposition, uh, which will be won uh, pretty much uniformly by, by Maduro and, and his party. Uh, and so you're going to have uh, not only a constituent assembly, but a national assembly uh, filled with pro-Maduro parties and pro-Maduro people. Uh, and, and Guaido, unfortunately, it, it's, it's really a fait accompli, uh, will be relegated. Um, and so the, the U.S. faces a very difficult question of whether it's going to uh, continue, as I, as I predict it will, uh, continue to recognize him as the, uh, as the figure with the most amount of democratic legitimacy in the country. Uh, but what it means uh, for, for him to be that figure without an official political post, uh, uh, with, without a, an, an official position uh, uh, in the National Assembly, uh, in the role of interim president, which is, you know, by the way, uh, constitutionally a, a fully legitimate uh, a position uh, as per a, a constitution that was passed by uh, by Hugo Chavez, of all people. And I don't quite have all the answers, but I, I think it's, you know, beyond targeting uh, sanctions better, uh, it's going to take a complete rethink as to how to maintain pressure on the ground when um, when the most legitimate democratic figure in the country uh, no longer has the prominent post as, as head of the National Assembly that he has now. Right. It does make things a little bit complicated, and maybe there does need to be a, a systemic reinvention of our approach, which has been analytical in some senses, but more holistic in others. And the latter, I think, it does a good job of um, preventing people from really understanding the situation. But just like with uh, the situation in Nicaragua, I guess the silver lining here is that there's uh, the prospect of passing sanctions and other sorts of legislation with 
very broad bipartisan support. So for the listeners, if they want to read more about you and your work on the hemisphere, which um, I must commend you for is very, very detailed all the way from, uh, from Mexico to Argentina, where can they find you? Two places that I would uh, commend them to. The first is the, the AI website where you can find my, my profile, uh, Ryan Berg. Uh, and, and second is on uh, Twitter, uh, which is my social media uh, of, of choice. It's really the only social media I use. Um, and my handle is uh, at Ryan Berg. That's R-Y-A-N-B-E-R-G-P-H-D. Um, and it's there that, uh, in addition to the AI website where you can find all of my research reports, my op-eds, uh, any thoughts that I have in a, in a particular moment, I tend to tweet out good articles that I've read, uh, during the week. I, I really do try to engage in good Twitter behavior. Uh, <laughs> and so if you want to engage uh, with me there, um, I'd, I'd be happy to, uh, to, to answer questions, to read things that you send me. Um, and it's also where I, I publicize all of the things that I'm working on as well. Yes, that's something that I would tell the readers to not take for granted because it's very characteristic of Twitter users to shoot the messenger and uh, and I can sort of endorse you on that. So again, his Twitter handle is Ryan Berg, PhD. I will have that description or I will have that, uh, that Twitter handle and the report in my description. Ryan, I learned a lot about Nicaragua in the short time that we spoke, and I would recommend others to do the same because it is a case study, not just for the region, but for the hemisphere. So again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the interview, and thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks again for tuning into the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. See you all in the next one.